from the seventh chapter of Matthew. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Do you know what a cairn is? It's possible that you don't know the word cairn, but I bet we could all remember a time when we came upon a pile of stacked stones, probably on a hiking or nature trail somewhere. Those stacked stones are called a cairn. In the context of hiking, cairns help mark trails to keep hikers from getting lost. They're trail markers built by other hikers. In less than ideal weather conditions or even in a dense forest, the trail can be hard to discern sometimes. If hikers find themselves on a mountain when fog or stormy weather rolls in, cairns may be the only thing they can see that keeps them on the trail. Pastor and theologian N.T. Wright looks at the words we just heard at the end of Matthew 7 and says they are a cairn. In fact, N.T. Wright says that the words of verse 28 are one of five cairns that Matthew has placed throughout his gospel to keep his audience on the path. You see, Matthew arranged his gospel in five sections as a not-so-subtle nod to the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. N.T. Wright teaches us that one of the ways we can spot those five sections is that the word something like, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, will be used. Matthew uses a sentence like that five separate times in his gospel. And when we hear those words in verse 28 at the end of chapter 7, that is the first cairn, signifying the end of the first section of Matthew's gospel. Wright points out that these cairns usually come at the end of an overwhelming amount of information where hearers of the story might be trying to process all they have just heard. As they try to organize profound teaching or an eye-opening story they just heard, a cairn, something to mark the path forward, is needed. This first cairn, the one we just heard, comes at the end of what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount represents an overwhelmingly dense collection of life-altering teachings from Jesus. And it's easy to see why this would be a good time to stack some stones and mark the trail with a simple story, a summary metaphor, something relatable, something that can be visualized and remembered, like a story about two people building houses in two different places. That's practical. In fact, I think the practicality of this story could be the first thing we notice about this cairn that Matthew inserts following the Sermon on the Mount. For both the storyteller 
and the original audience, this metaphor about building a house is very practical. The storyteller is Jesus, a man raised by Joseph the Tecton, a word that has been historically interpreted as carpenter, but is more accurately translated as stonemason or construction worker. Jesus grew up in the home of a man who built things. Jesus most likely helped his father in stonemasonry and construction as a young man. For Jesus to tell a story about home construction and the importance of a sturdy foundation is practical. This isn't just philosophy to Jesus, it's tangible, it's real. The same could be said for the original audience of the story. They were desert folk of first century Palestine and they knew a thing or two about flash floods washing things away. They knew how easy and tempting it could be to build in the shade protection and comfort of a dry wadi or riverbed. That's where you could easily access the little water that was to be found in the desert. It's where you could get some shade from the scorching desert sun and protection from the blistering desert wind. And they also knew that a sudden storm could send a devastating wall of water down that same wadi with no warning at all. The storm didn't even have to be close by. Rain could fall far away in another region and the wadis would still collect it and send it toward the sea, wiping out everything in its path. The scenario that Jesus, the construction worker, describes in this story is not far-fetched at all. It's just the kind of thing his audience would have experienced. It's a practical story. Practical, but also common, which could be the second thing we note about this cairn. It's commonality. The story that Jesus tells about two different homes being built diff differently and facing different consequences was and is a common story. Pastor and author John Ortberg wisely reminds us that this is the same basic premise of the fable of the three little pigs. When the wolf comes, how you built your house matters. But this story, this metaphor was even common before the three little pigs. Jesus' audience knew this story. They had heard it before. Not quite the same way as this construction worker turned rabbi is going to tell it, but the basic form was the same. This was a common metaphor in Judaism where the rock foundation upon which hearers were advised to build was the Torah. Listen to these portions of the story of God to see just how familiar this imagery was to the original audience. From the 28th chapter of Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, see I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. One who trusts will not panic, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plummet. Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. From the 22nd chapter of Job, are you going to persist in that tired old line that wicked men and women have always used? Where did it get them? They died young, flash floods sweeping them off to their doom. And from the 13th chapter of Ezekiel. The fact is that they've lied to my people. They've said, no problem, everything's just fine when things are not at all fine. 
When people build a wall, they're right behind them slapping on whitewash. Tell those who are slapping on the whitewash when a torrent of rain comes and the hailstones crash down and the hurricane sweeps in and the wall collapses, what's the good of the whitewash that you slapped on so liberally, making it look good? This cairn, this trail marker has practicality, but it also has commonality. It's familiar. It's recognizable. It's relatable. The third feature we could notice about this story is its duality. This story is a direct comparison between two different ways of being. It's a duel of sorts. Although this is a very short story with very few words, the words that are used make the duality clear. The two sides are laid out explicitly. One builder is wise. The other is foolish. One house is built on a rock. The other is built on sand. One house does not fall. The other house falls. Wisdom versus foolishness. A rocky house, a rocky foundation versus a sandy one. A house that survives the flood versus a house that does not. Now this explicit duality underscores the singular difference between the two builders. One builder puts the teachings of Jesus into practice. The other does not. That's it. That's all there is to it. That's the difference between a firm foundation that can withstand a flood and a sandy foundation that is washed away. It's straightforward, simple, uncomplicated. It's a cairn that clearly marks the trail. The words and imagery used here draw no lines of distinction between insiders and outsiders. It's not about the quality of the construction of the house. It's not about having access or privilege. Both builders hear the teachings of Jesus. Both builders know and recognize Jesus. Both builders have the same access to Jesus. One builder hears and responds. The others hears and does not. The foundation comes down to actually doing what Jesus has placed before them. Rabbi Nahum Ward Lev teaches that we should understand the Hebraic word Shema that we just said a few moments ago, which is often translated as listen or hear, as listening so closely that you can't help but respond. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. Listen so closely, hear so intently that you can't help but do something about what you've heard. And therein lies the duality of this cairn and the difference between the foundations. And that duality can point us toward a fourth aspect of this story its certainty. The wisdom of this metaphor is not ambiguous. Jesus isn't making a humble suggestion for the consideration of those listening. This story is certain about a couple of things, not the least of which is who Matthew is telling us Jesus is. We have already noted that this story and imagery were usually used to portray the Torah as the foundation upon which lives should be built. Jesus, with much certainty, says that the firm foundation is doing what he teaches. 
his words. Now, lest we think that Jesus is dismissing the Torah, we should remember that the teachings of Jesus are based on Torah. Jesus certainly is not trying to dismiss the Torah, but he is trying to bring certainty to it. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what the Torah looks like when it's truly lived, look at me. Live like me. He's saying, if you want to know what it would be like if God's law and teaching and instruction and blessing put on flesh and bones and lived among you, I am right here. No confusion, certainty. This story is also certain about the flood. It's certain that the flood cannot be avoided. This metaphor declares with much certainty that the storms will gather in every life. The rain will fall on every builder. The creek will rise along every foundation. The winds will blow against every house. And we may spend our time trying to run from the storms. We may spend our money trying to hide from the rain. We may give our energy to trying to dam the creeks and surrender our peace to bracing against the wind. But be certain of this, the flood comes for us all. Jesus the Christ is not our ticket away from the flood. Not according to this story. According to this cairn, there is no ticket to escape the storms of this life. According to this pile of stacked stones following the Sermon on the Mount, life is not about escaping the storms and the flood. It's about listening to Jesus so closely that you can't help but respond, building with Jesus the kind of life and light and love that can't be washed away when the floods come because they will. And therein lies the fifth and final aspect of this story for me. It's spirituality. The breath that fills its lungs. The wind that empowers and directs it. The place where we can connect and be inspired and transformed there is a clear spiritual invitation within this story to move from simply listening into active living, to leave talking the talk behind for walking the walk. Don't just simply hear his words and profess Jesus. Listen so intently, follow so closely that you can't help but do something about what you have heard from him and seen in him. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, saying, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are nowhere near me because they elevate mere human ritual to the status of law. Their worship of me is a meaningless sham. A faith that is a matter of lip service, simply professing our beliefs, expressed only in the words that we say and pray and sing at certain times is a faith that can be easily hijacked by other forces. 
History is littered with the corpses of earnest, articulate, well-expressed faiths and beliefs that were washed down the wadis of empire and colonialism, genocide and holocaust, politics and parties. Powerful floods that collect everything in their path, including the most well-intentioned, biblically-based, believing governments, religious movements, and churches. The spirituality of this story seems to be an invitation beyond the profession of our beliefs. Friends, I don't mean to be indelicate, but my experience tells me that my beliefs are an inconsistent, incomplete, and developing picture at best, kind of like shifting sand. If I'm honest, my beliefs aren't as solid a foundation as I, may, as I might like to think. I may want to believe they're a firm foundation, but the truth is my beliefs can be radically changed by new information or new experiences. My beliefs are dynamic. They change and evolve. They can even be washed away by a flood they were never built to withstand. We believe all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes we can't even tell each other why we believe what we believe. Even worse, we often claim to hold beliefs for which there is no evidence in our lives that we actually believe them. And we can probably all think of people, we may even be people, who claim to believe in Jesus but don't look like, live, or behave like him. If we believe in Jesus, but we do not value what he valued, we do not live as he lived, we don't follow his instructions and example, what is that belief worth? Professing our faith can be as easy as repeating words we have heard. It doesn't even require thought or reflection. Toddlers can do that. Parrots can do that. If we train a parrot to mimic us saying Jesus is Lord, is that parrot now living in the way of Jesus the Christ and partnering with God toward the restoration of all things? The spirituality of this story, the path that this Karen marks, the firm foundation is how I live my faith. What am I doing about what I profess? Am I putting the teachings of Jesus into practice? Am I living the way he taught, the way he modeled? Is my life a light to others around me? Am I showing love and acceptance and mercy to my enemies? Am I caring and sharing with those who have less or nothing at all? Am I avoiding anxiety Am I avoiding judging other people? Do I avoid speaking ill of those whom I could murder with my words? Am I working on the plank in my eye or the speck in yours? When I am persecuted, do I respond with peacemaking? 
Now, with a list of questions like that, it's very important to remember that this is not a transaction. We are not bartering with God, offering our behavior and actions in the hopes that we can earn the love of God. Hear this if you hear nothing else this morning. We are all beloved children of God, and we always will be, period. As my late friend Dick Danielson used to remind me, <clears throat> nothing we have ever done will cause God to love us less, and nothing we will ever do will cause God to love us more. We are loved beyond our wildest imaginations because of who God is. We don't follow Jesus into action in order to earn God's love. We follow Jesus, putting into practice what he taught, living as he lived, loving as he loved, so that our lives might become the kind of lives that cannot be hijacked, the kind of lives that stand firm, no matter what washes down the wadi. We listen so closely that we can't help but respond, and in responding, we trust that our lives will be spiritually built upon the rock that withstands the coming flood. Father Robert Taft, a Jesuit priest and scholar, offers a challenging interpretation of Michelangelo's famous creation scene that is depicted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. He says, in the magnificent creation scene, the life-giving finger of God stretches out and almost but not quite touches the finger of the reclining Adam. There is a gap, a space between them. It is our lives, our work that fill the gap between those two fingers. God is a creating, life-giving, saving, redeeming hand, ever reaching out toward us, and yet leaving us space where our hand can either be raised in response or refuse to be raised. And for the sake of the argument, I'm going to presume that because Adam looks toward God, that he believes in God. And since the Adam is raising his hand toward the outstretched hand of God, Adam at the very least professes his faith in God. But the gap still remains. Believing in God, professing faith, doesn't fill that space. It's as if Michelangelo has given us an artistic cairn, a stack of standing stones in the form of two outstretched hands, one belonging to God, the other belonging to us, both of them directing us to the gap, the space between the two hands. We are invited to fill that space with our lives. We are invited to build in that gap. Sometimes we build foolishly on foundations that will not last. Sometimes we build storms. And sometimes the storms just come. Here's the good news. We don't have to build alone. Jesus, our brother, the tecton, the construction worker, our rabbi, and our teacher, our redeemer, waits for us in that space. And he knows right where to build. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, 
sovereign of all creation who transforms us with your instructions. We thank you for the space you have given us. We are grateful for the invitation we have to partner with you in building lives of love and light and peace that will withstand every flood. We rejoice at the example, teaching, and life of Jesus the Christ that models for us how we are called to build. We ask for your help in letting go of those things in our lives that need to be washed away by the flood. And we pray for firm foundations. May we all receive the clarity and confidence of your spirit as we follow you and join you in new construction. Amen.